0: Well, open your Bibles to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. This is uh, really a part of our study of Romans that I've been looking forward to since we began a couple of years back in this great epistle. I, uh, I love this chapter and I hope it's one of your favorites as well. We're going to be looking this morning at the first four verses. Romans chapter 8. Let me just put that in our mind for us. Follow along as I read. Verse 1 says... Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and of death. For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did, sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh, as an offering for sin, and he condemned sin in the flesh so that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. One of the most useful tools in my toolbox, and I'm not a great craftsman, but this is one that I know well. It almost has my handprints embedded in its steel. My most uh, favorite tool is a crescent wrench. Crescent wrench is a beautiful thing. I love when it's nice and oiled and it's a good crescent wrench and you can roll that little gear in your thumb. Put simply, it's an adjustable wrench, as you know. In European terms, it's known as an adjustable spanner. Crescent wrench has a jaw that can be adjusted into different sizes to fit a multitude of nuts and bolts Whereas a fixed wrench, as you know, can only, or a fixed spanner, uh, can only fit one size. It's especially helpful to me because it seems like I'm always buying things that are both European measurements and metrics and standard American. And I I can never find the right uh, socket wrench to, to fit it. So that crescent wrench always fits perfectly. Romans 8, to me, is my crescent wrench in the Bible. It fits everything. It fits my life when I'm up, it fits my life when I'm down. It fits my life for conviction, it fits my life for encouragement. It's hardly possible for me to imagine a counseling situation, an encouragement situation, a celebration, or a time of mourning, any context in which, for which, Romans eight could not and would not have application. It's one of the most eminently practical application chapters in your Bible. This set of verses is unlike anything else. It's it's remarkable in, in practicality and in conviction, in theology and in insight. I found it to be personally really special for me because of so many applications. I find myself drifting back to it. If I'm sitting somewhere and I, and I have an opportunity to read my Bible on my iPad, my iPhone, my Bible that's with me, and I don't know where to read, it seems like the gravitational force of the Bible I'm holding folds me and pulls me back to Romans 8. It's been called the greatest chapter in the Bible. Who am I to judge that? One writer comments like this. If Holy Scripture was a ring and the epistle to Romans was its precious stone... Chapter 8 would be the sparkling point of the jewel. We began this chapter in our last study. Let's jump back in. We looked at chapter 8, verse 1 in isolation. Now we're going to look at chapter 8, verses 1 through 4, and look at verse 1 in the context of the, the, the following three verses. Let me just say this. These, it's like an on-ramp. The first four verses are going to get us up to speed theologically, go back and capture what we've studied, and give us an introduction into what's coming ahead And then beginning in verses 5 and going down to 13, it might be the most important verses in your Bible in terms of letting you know what you need to do and who you need to be as a Christian. Let's break down these first four verses like this. I want to look with you and find four experiences of the freeing power of the gospel. Four experiences. These are, these are feelings and experiences and realizations that you and I have when we understand what the gospel actually does for us. Four experiences of the freeing power of the gospel. Now, in order to understand that it's free, you have to understand that we're first bound, that we're first trapped. And that's exactly where Paul begins. Look at the first one, it's in verse one. It just breaks down straight according to the verses. Freedom from the penalty of sin. We looked at this briefly last time. Freedom from the penalty of sin. Paul says, therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. As we've said, justification being made right before God, a holy God, demands perfect righteousness, which only Jesus accomplished in his life which he gives to us by faith in the gospel and the need to get sin taken away is exactly what the cross did. The first five chapters of Romans talk about that. Chapter six is the position of holiness with God before God and then chapter seven outlines the struggle and when it talks about the struggle, it lands us at the end of talking about the good I wanna do, I don't do, I do the very thing I don't wanna do. Oh, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me? That deliver has the idea of being trapped. Who will deliver me? Christ is going to now be seen as the great deliverer. And the Holy Spirit throughout this chapter is going to be the one who will be our means and helper and guide for deliverance. But chapter 7 leaves us really easy asking the question, if I struggle so much, if I struggle so intently, if I keep doing things I don't want to do, If I keep finding myself not doing the things that I know I should do, can I actually be a Christian? Am I really saved? Paul actually gets to that point by the end of chapter 7. He understands that the presence of residual sin causes a a certain degree of a lack of assurance. And so he says definitively in chapter 8, verse 1, Therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are Christians, who are in Christ Jesus. The internal war is a good evidence that something has taken place in our lives. The fight against sin, if we're fighting sin, only believers care to fight sin. And Paul talks about that in this verse, the verses before us, rather. How can I be a Christian and do this? How can I be a Christian and not do what I should well, it's the continual cycle of sin that, that we see and understand. I, I, I had a really good set of conversations last week with, with some folks. when I, They were talking about a comment I would made in the last sermon that the, the longer I'm a Christian, the more sinful I see myself. Now, let me, I want to under, under, give you some understanding of that. The, the longer I'm a Christian, I see bigger sins that, that tend, to, tend to get in the rearview mirror. I'm not struggling with the exact same things in the exact same way that I did when I was 16. But what I have found is that the longer I'm a Christian and the more I grow, I begin to see things in my heart that I didn't recognize as sin before. I see shadows and, and kind of uh, uh, the, these, these peripheral attitudes that to me were just you know part of being alive years ago. Now I see those as part of the residual sin. So, there's both the growth and encouragement where you see you're, you're moving away from sin and also the hypersensititation to other sins. The point of that is you have to understand that if our expectation is that we're gonna follow Christ, love Christ, serve Christ, grow in Christ so that someday, one day, we will wake up and say, wow, the struggle is now over. That's a problem. It's not the testimony of Scripture. By the way, we've alluded to the fact. And we'll come back to this later in chapter eight. That um, Wesleyanism uh, uh, taught perfectionism in its purest form back uh, when uh, John Wesley began to articulate this. That if you try hard enough and you stick at it uh, long enough, that you are going to eventually get to the point where you're totally sanctified and perfect. It's just not the testimony of Scripture. If anyone would have done that, you would think the Apostle Paul would have. And he didn't. So, his theological stamp, his conclusion here in in chapter 8, verse 1, which is also the introduction to chapter 8, is there's no condemnation, a technical term for the result of judging, there's no guilty verdict. Remember, we looked at back in chapter five, verse 16 and verse 18. He uses this same idea, this concept that we are under no condemnation as believers. Why? Because Jesus was condemned for us. He took the penalty of our sin. It's like when we were explaining to our children when they were little, when they deserved a spanking. This is like someone coming and taking a spanking for you. Jesus took the punishment for us. He took the cross for us and so if you go down into chapter 8 we'll see this later he he says that gives us relationship with Christ protection from Christ solidarity with Christ all on the Holy Spirit all based on the Holy Spirit Paul is saying that God utters a no verdict of condemnation on us no verdict of condemnation He sees us in Christ as having been made clean and being presented with the present of righteousness. Now, we studied this in in, um, depth last week, so I don't want to belabor the point. But since we've looked at chapter 8, verse 1, I just keep going back when I read it and thinking of that one lyric in the hymn uh, that you know so well. My sin, oh the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole, think about this, all of my sin, not in part, not just some of it, not just the worst ones, not just the subtle ones, my sin, not in part, but the whole was nailed to the cross. And then what does it say? And I bear it no more. That ought to be a song that's that's really ever present in our, in our souls. That we're looking constantly at the fact that we don't bear the condemnation with God. As my son told me when he was a very young um, boy and we were talking about this. He said, dad, when you become a Christian, it's really good not to be in trouble with God anymore. And he's right. Freedom from the penalty of sin. We looked at that in depth last time. Now let's move on to verse 2. Freedom from the power of sin. Freedom from the power of sin. Now let me just say, this is going to be an introduction that Paul is going to flesh out in the rest of the chapter. Freedom from the power of sin. Verse 2. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. What's going on here? Romans 8, 2 marks a significant change in the book. Now, you have to to get your arms and your mind around this. This is really important. This is a significant change in the book because he's now introduced the Holy Spirit to us in some detail and the rest of the chapter is going to explain his ministry in fuller detail. Think about this. In the first seven chapters of Romans, combined, all the chapters combined, the Holy Spirit is mentioned one time. In verse one, 4 of chapter 1. In chapter 8 alone, he's mentioned 20 times. So that ought to give you some indication that Paul is now about to accent the ministry, the presence, the work of the Holy Spirit. Verses 2 and 3, he frees us from sin and death. Verse 4, he enables us to fulfill God's law. Verses 5 to 13, he changes our nature and provides strength. And victory over our unredeemed flesh. Verses 14 to 16. The Holy Spirit will confirm our adoption as sons and children of God. Verses 17 to 30. He will guarantee our ultimate glory in heaven. He will finish the work he began in us. Here in verse 2 we begin this idea of walking with the Spirit. Now... As you study the the doctrine of the Holy Spirit and as you study this chapter, you'll see that the personal pronouns for the Holy Spirit are all personal, masculine, third-person pronouns. What that means is the Holy Spirit is a he. The Holy Spirit is not an it. It's not a force. He's not a force. He's not some magical force that you plug into. The Holy Spirit is a person. He is a member of the Trinity. He does work. He accomplishes work in us, for us. And verse 2 launches us into thinking about his work. In us and on our behalf. It begins with word for. That indicates Paul's now explaining why there is no condemnation for the believer. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ. For, and now he gives a reason why that is. The first reason is attached to the Holy Spirit. The reason we're not condemned is because the Holy Spirit has invaded the life of a Christian And replace the law that produced only sin and death with a new kind of law. Now we don't want to get too um, bogged down with this. Because in chapters 5 and 6 and 7 we studied this intensely. That we were born under the law. Whether you knew the law, the Old Testament, the first five books specifically. The requirements of God, the moral standards of God. We were born under obligation to that law. Now you say, hang on, that's, that's a Jewish term. Paul knew that. He knew that the Jews had the law. They were possessors of the law. But chapter 2 verse four says that we 14 says that we, even as Gentiles, have the law of God written on our hearts. Right and wrong. We were born under the law. But look at what Paul describes it, how he describes it here. He says, it's uh, kind of working backwards in the verse. We are free from the law of sin and death. How is the precious word of God, the law of God, the moral requirements of God, How is that a law of sin and death? Isn't it good? Paul says the law is good when he talks to Timothy. He's going to tell us we have the ability to obey the law in verse 4. So how is the law a law of sin and death? To fully understand that, you have to go down to verse 3. Let me just sneak ahead for a moment. And that is that the law was weak because the law was given to us, and without the Spirit of God, man trying to obey God's moral standards only left us in frustration, in externalism, and in inconsistency. He sets against that in contrast that the Holy Spirit is a new law. The law, this is the principle, the standard of the Spirit of life that's in contrast to the law which brings death because we're all under the law and uh, as we're born we we have a moral standard that we never achieve to and God will hold us accountable to but the spirit brings life in Christ Jesus and here it is that deliverance it has set us free This is another way of talking about the Holy Spirit actually using a pry bar and hinging open our conscience, which is attached to moralism. All of us know what it's like to not do what we're supposed to do and feel bad about it. All of us know what it's like to say something we shouldn't say, to regret. We've all sensed the regret where our conscience is, is flaring up and telling us that we violated the law of God. Here we're introduced to the Holy Spirit, and he is the spirit of life, synonymous with the gospel, the law of faith, in distinction to the law of sin and death. It was good, holy, righteous. Chapter 7, verse 12 tells us that, but because of the weakness of the flesh, as we're about to see, the law can only produce sin and death. In fact, Paul says, to have the law without the spirit is actually to be tempted into more sin. Remember that? Remember his argument? He says, I, I didn't know that I was a coveter until I said, I read, you shall not covet. Then I, then I was coveting everything. We understand that the, to give a prohibition to a young child is to invite him to try to break that prohibition. So Paul just says, we're, we're free from the power. Because the spirit is now the controlling principle in our lives. We can't go too deeply into this because he's going to come back to this in verses 5 to 13. But for now, know this. We are either slaves, as he said in chapter 6, to unrighteousness or slaves to the Spirit of God in righteousness. Meaning, somebody is our master. Some principle guides us. Some law is at work in our lives, in our hearts, pulling us, wooing us. Now here's the challenge. As a Christian, the flesh is still residual in us. It's, it hasn't gone away. There, there will never be a time until we go to glory, until we go to heaven, where the flesh will not be a part of trapping us, keeping us from perfection. But here we find out that the Spirit gives life. And the Spirit is a new law. And the spirit is according to Christ Jesus. And the spirit is a freeing person. Just a little footnote on verse two. Are you, have you been a a victim of your own conscience? I mean, all of us are to a certain extent. I understand that. But are you someone whose conscience bears down on your, your lack of righteousness so heavily that it makes you question whether or not Christ and the Spirit of God and the gospel itself can free you from that? You know, sometimes I, I think that people believe that they wouldn't say this, but people can easily slip into the belief that, you know, my sin is greater than God's grace. My life is beyond the reach of God's grace. Spirit brings life. We also might say this, if you don't feel being alive to God in some sense, you say, that's a feeling. I mean that. Do you, if you don't feel alive to God in Christ because of the Spirit's work in your life, because of the wooing presence, the Word of God in your life, there might be a problem. The power of sin has been set aside and a greater power has come. Namely, God himself has invaded our lives, the Holy Spirit, Verses 5 to 13 are going to talk about being unleashed from that power in great detail. For now, let's go on to a third experience of the freeing power of the gospel in verse 3. This explains now what we just began to talk about. Freedom from the burden of sin. Freedom from the burden of sin for what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh. Now that's interesting The law was inept to do something. The law was unable to do something. The law had limitations. What could the law not do? Very simple. It could not produce righteousness. Telling you to do something doesn't guarantee that you're going to do it. Or even do it with the right heart or the right attitude. Just having a standard doesn't ensure obedience. The law couldn't do it. But the problem wasn't with the law. Now he tells us. Weak as it was. Here it is. Through the what? Flesh. It was weak through the flesh. This fact. This insight into Christ's work on the cross. Should cause pause and reflection. That leads to worship. Because he took care of something. In the gospel. That the law of God could have never done. In the older testament. The law could not deliver sinners from its penalty. The law could tell us where we were wrong, but the law couldn't deliver us from the penalty of sin. It could never make anyone righteous, Galatians 3.21 says. It was weak through the flesh because of the sinful corruption, because of our depravity, because of our unbelieving hearts. The law had no power to produce righteousness. Look for a second over at Galatians chapter three, verse 21. This is an important correlation that Paul's making. Remember, he's um, saying to the Galatians almost a mini form of what he said to the Romans. Galatians chapter three, verse 21. It is the law then, contrary, is the law rather, contrary to the promises of God may it ever be. For if a law had been given which was able to impart life, then righteousness would indeed have been based on law. Do you see what he's saying there? If God had made the law, the Old Testament requirements, specifically in Genesis through Deuteronomy, if he had made the law with such intrinsic power that just to see it, understand it, and obey it would grant and guarantee righteousness, it would have. Would have been based though on the law and not on God and His grace. It was weak because the law was dependent on us, on us obeying. The standard wasn't wrong, it was the obeyers who were wrong. So look at the next part of the the verse now. What the law could not do, God did. What was the law trying to do? The law, was, the law was, we wanted, rather, the law to give us righteousness. That's what Galatians 3.21 says. But it couldn't. God did that, though. How did God grant us the righteousness that we need? Sending his own son. This is incredible. In the likeness of sinful flesh as an offering for sin. Now, be careful when you see that in the likeness of sinful flesh. It doesn't mean that he was a sinner. It did mean, though, that he was temptable. Now, this is very important. Look over in Hebrews chapter 2 for a moment. Hebrews 2. You have to see where this is fully explained by the writer of the Hebrews. Why did Jesus become flesh and blood? Why did God become a man? Why do we have the Christmas holiday where God Emmanuel became with us as a baby in a manger? Hebrews chapter 2 verse 14. Therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood. Since we have flesh and blood. Since we have sinful flesh. He himself, Jesus, likewise also did the same. Partook of the same. Became a man that through death he might render powerless. Him who had the power of death, that is the devil. Here's our freedom. And might free those who. Who through the fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. You see what's going on here? He became a man because men can die. He became a man so he could die. He became a man so he could die our death as a substitute. Just incredible. That's what it means here then in Romans chapter 8 verse 3. He became a man. He became flesh and blood, so he could die as an offering for sin. And that's where, look at the last phrase: He now condemned sin in the flesh. See the condemnation that's that's uh, just two verses apart. No condemnation for us. He condemned in verse three. He condemned sin in the flesh. He judged sin. He rendered a verdict on sin. No longer powerful over a believer. That's his judgment. If we ever get used to thinking through the incredible reality that Jesus died as our offering, as our substitute in our place, when you lose the wonder of that, you'll lose worship. When you lose worship, you'll lose grip on obedience. When you lose grip on obedience, you'll have a struggle with assurance, and it's an endless cycle. We have to keep anchored to the reality that We deserved what Christ did for us. He condemned sin in the flesh. God's condemnation against sin was fully poured out on a sinless savior. That's what Isaiah 53 talks about, Philippians 2, 7 as well. Now really, these um, um, experiences of the freeing power of the gospel, freedom from the penalty of sin, freedom from the power of sin, freedom from the burden of sin, really lead to the most important, as Paul climaxes this argument, experience, and that's in verse four. Freedom from the restraint of sin. You say, What do you mean? Freedom from the restraint of sin. Sin restrains us, sin holds us back, it, it keeps us back from pursuing the righteousness that God wants us to have and that the true Christian wants to experience. Verse 4 is um, <laughs> verse 4 is the hinge of the testaments, older and newer testaments. You say, What do you mean by that? Look what it says. Verse 4 So that the requirement of the law, living righteously might be fulfilled in us. And now we begin Paul's great section on talking about life in the Spirit. Who do not live or walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. This righteous requirement of the law, this requirement includes thoughts that are holy, words that are holy, deeds that are holy, the moral law which God commands. The moral law finds its basis in the character of God himself, It's his heart that's expressed in the law, summarized in the Ten Commandments, summarized by Jesus, by loving God, loving others. But what the external moral written code was unable to accomplish, the Holy Spirit himself did by writing the law of God's on our hearts. Now, this is an important field trip we need to take. Turn to Jeremiah chapter 31. If you're a Bible student, you would know immediately what Jeremiah 31 is about, right? It's the new covenant. Jeremiah 31. This is Jeremiah looking ahead and seeing what it's going to be like when God brings salvation to his people, his new covenant. Verse 33, chapter 31, verse 33. But this is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, declares the Lord, I will put my law within them and on their heart I will write it and I will be their God and they shall be my people. They will not teach again, each man his neighbor and each man his brother saying, know the Lord for they will all know me. From the least of them to the greatest of them declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and their sin I will remember no more. This is such a precious passage because it's the already not yet part of salvation. The already we get God's law written on our hearts. We get to fulfill the law. We'll see that in Ezekiel in just a moment. But not yet in that we don't have that time when we don't say no to the Lord. It's, it's the beginning of the redemption of God that's happened in the New Testament church that will be fulfilled one day. In the millennial kingdom. Now turn over to Ezekiel chapter 36. This is even more clear in Ezekiel. Speaking of the new covenant, and if you tend to write cross references in your, in your Bible, putting Ezekiel 36 verses 26 to 28 over by Romans chapter 8 verse 4 would be a good connection to make. Ezekiel 36 verse 26. Speaking of that great new covenant day, Ezekiel says, moreover, quoting God, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. Verse 27, this is so important. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes. This is incredible. And then in that day when my spirit is in you, you will be careful to observe my ordinances. Then he shifts back from the the time of the gospel, shifts forward rather, that time of the restoration of Israel. You will live in the land that I gave your forefathers So you will be my people and I will be your God. It's really tempting to go on a little excursus to say we strongly believe here at Mission Road Bible Church God will fulfill the promises of putting Israel, restored and saved Israel in the land of Israel geographically, literally, physically. But part of that new covenant we get to to enjoy now. It's in verses 26 and 27. Verse 27, again, I'll put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes. You'll be careful to observe my ordinances. Now connect that back to Romans chapter eight. Look at verse four. This is the connection of the two testaments. The requirements of the law might be fulfilled not in a future restored Israel, that will happen, but where? In us, Who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Do you see that connection? We are called to enjoy the power of the Spirit of God in us. To do what God called Israel to do that they could never do. Because they didn't have the Spirit of God within them. We are participants and enjoyers of the new covenant that Jesus began. Now, this is an on-ramp for the next section, but look at the on-ramp in one simple word, walk. Those who are Christians do not walk according to our old habits, our old way, our old thinking, the fleshly uh, course of this world, but We walk according to the Spirit. You say, how do you walk according to the Spirit? Paul's gonna take the rest of the chapter and explain that, but let me give you a preview. You walk according to the Spirit by acknowledging his presence, by listening to his word. The Holy Spirit is the one who inspired inerrant scripture and being sensitive to his conviction. The second we start stiff-arming the convicting power and presence of God in our lives, We drift back into the other side of this verse, walking according to the flesh, not according to the Spirit. There's only really two options in life we walk with the flesh and our desires governing all of our decisions, or we walk with the Spirit of God convicting and pressing us and encouraging us to walk in His way. Walk means a lifestyle, it's the habits of living and thinking, it's the way your life is characterized. Since every believer, every true Christian is indwelt by the Spirit of God, every Christian should and will manifest the evidence of that. You say, what do you mean, evidence? Well, Paul did tell the Galatians about this evidence. Another word for evidence is fruit, right? For the fruit of the Spirit. We sometimes think of the fruit of the Spirit wrong. We, we think of these categories. We think these are things I should pursue and apply. And, and they, they should be. But understand what Paul's saying. He's saying the fruit of the Spirit is not first and foremost something that you go do. It's first and foremost something that happens as a result of your walking with the Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Self-control. And against such things, now we understand what he means, there's no law. We don't do these things because we're controlled by an external standard. We do these things because God in his Holy Spirit is working those out in our lives. So the fruit of the Spirit, although they should be things, all of the fruit are things that are commanded elsewhere in the scripture. This passage, the fruit, ought to be just a checklist where we say, do I see that my walking with the Spirit actually produces love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control? Is that, does that happen? Is that, is that a natural consequence, evidence of the work of the Spirit of God in my life? Now, if you're like me, you would say, yeah, sometimes. But you would also say not all the time, Right? So how do we move that from not always to some of the time? How do we move that to most of the time? And the answer to that is given, drum roll, in the rest of the verses in chapter eight. And you don't have to wait till we preach it. You can read through there yourself. The key is to acknowledge, understand, and listen to the power of the Spirit of God that's indwelling the life of a believer. Let me say it very carefully. The Holy Spirit is way too magnificent, way too powerful a being to be present in your life and not have a massive seismic effect. Father, dismiss us with thoughts of a dying Savior who offers us. Tidings of good joy, tidings of blessed joy, tidings of thoughtfulness that this season will be singing about soon, but as a Christian, we understand by experience. Thank you for the freeing power of your spirit and the glorious gospel we know and can now celebrate in remembrance. In Jesus' name, amen.